Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. No justice! After a full day of deliberations in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, the wait continues. He's looking at a life sentence, potentially without parole. Judge Bruce Schrader visibly angry. Don't get brazen with me. Kyle Rittenhouse testifies in his own defense. Did you even care whether you were going to kill him or not? I, I didn't want to have to kill anybody. I was being attacked. That's why I shot him. I was cornered from in front of me with Mr. Zeminski. And there were... There were people right there. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson here with Amanda St. Hilaire. Hi, Amanda. Hey, Brian. We are recording this episode on Thursday, November 18th. The trial of Kyle Rittenhouse has committed national attention. And by the time you listen to this, there might be a verdict. But there's been so much information coming out of this trial every single day over the past few weeks that today we want to sort through the big takeaways. So if you haven't been following, this all goes back to August 23rd, 2020. That's when Kenosha police shot a black man named Jacob Blake. There were protests and violence for several days. And Kyle Rittenhouse, who was 17 at the time, this is undisputed, shot three people, killing two. He is claiming self-defense. So, Brian, you've been following this case closely. And from a legal perspective, I think there tends to be confusion around this because people think that Kyle Rittenhouse has to prove self-defense, but he does not have to prove he acted in self-defense. The prosecution has to disprove it. So what exactly does the prosecution legally have to show happened? Well, if you look at the, and it's a long uh, list, 36 pages of jury instructions given to the Rittenhouse jury that they are working through right now, or at least as we record this, they are in their third day of deliberations. It's very clear, first of all, and this is just true constitutionally, that the burden of proof is on the state. They have to prove that Kyle Rittenhouse killed these people. That, of course, is not in dispute. We know that he caused their death. So that's the first element. Everyone agrees on that. There wouldn't have been a trial if this was a question of who did it or if the bullets caused the deaths of Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber and, of course, injured uh, a third person, Gage Grosskreutz. Um, but they have to prove more than just that he caused it. They have to prove that he was, in some of these cases, reckless with his conduct, criminally reckless. And in, in a way, they have to disprove, because the, the defense has raised the self-defense argument, they have to disprove that he was acting in self-defense. Now, in a couple of these counts, the intent to kill is also one of the elements. The state has to prove that not only did Kyle Rittenhouse shoot these people, but that he intended to kill them when he did it. So there is an element of intent. And in particular, with the case involving Anthony Huber, it's first degree intentional homicide. There is a misunderstanding. Uh, I think a lot of people who watch television murder mysteries and criminal trials, 
believe that it means the state must prove that he planned to do this in advance, that there was thought in advance. Wisconsin law does not require that. It requires an intentional homicide, that there's an intent, but that intent could be formed at the moment the act is happening. There is no specific time frame that shows planning, plotting, or, or, or thinking. So the state has to prove he intended to kill in a couple of these instances, but that could have happened just in that moment. And more importantly, they have to defeat the, the, the self-defense argument, proving that he behaved recklessly and did not reasonably fear that he was in danger of imminent death or great bodily harm. So, Brian, watching the prosecution lay out its case, it became clear to me that their witnesses, who were most helpful to them, also made key points that would appear to help the defense. So what were your key takeaways from the way the prosecution's case laid out? I think as general observers, there was a lot of feeling that the prosecution's witnesses hurt their case early on and that that was helping tip the case toward the defense. This is unusual from the beginning because it's not often that you have uh, charged homicide cases where there is video of the homicide itself or of the alleged homicide. We not only have a video, we have dozens and dozens of videos of the events leading up to it, the act itself, and then what happened afterwards. So there's a lot of dissection of what occurred. And what's clear from those videos is that there were certainly people who were swinging skateboards, trying to kick or or punch or, 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 or reach for the gun of, of Kyle Rittenhouse. So it definitely makes the state's case against self-defense more challenging. And so some of the state's witnesses, including in particular Gage Grossroyds, he's the one person who survived a gunshot wound that night, um, when he uh, is found in that video to be holding a handgun, and when there's a moment at which it appears that handgun is either intentionally or inadvertently pointed at Kyle Rittenhouse, to have him on the stand say, yes, correct, my gun was pointed at him uh, at the time he shot me, there were legal observers, defense attorneys, and others who were saying, that's it, the case is over, directed verdict, that's self, you know, automatic self-defense. It's not necessarily that simple, but certainly... The, the state's own – Gage Grosskreutz was called by the state, and there he is acknowledging, yes, I had a gun, and yes, it was pointed at the the defendant. So in some cases, it seemed like those may have been gaffes or, or things that hurt their case, but uh, certainly that was not the end of the case, and the state had a lot more to present as time went on. Well, and the state's narrative really seemed to be, at, at least at the beginning, he wasn't supposed to be there, you know, the phrase active shooter – came up multiple times, and then I don't want to say they they abandoned it, but they definitely were hitting those points a, a lot less as their case went on, as they were presenting it. Well, one of the additional elements the state uh, needs to prove, according to the jury instructions, in at least some of these uh, counts, is something that they didn't hit very hard early on, but actually came to later, which is the element of provocation. Because Self-defense, you lose that argument if, in fact, you're the reason this situation exists. If you are provoking someone to attack you, you cannot then say, I had a right to kill them because I felt threatened. Well, you provoked it. So the state has raised the issue of whether or not Kyle Rittenhouse, number one, should have been there in the first place. 
whether he was genuinely there to help people, as he said he was. He said he was acting as a medic, even though he is not a licensed EMT. He was in training for that as a, a cadet uh, or explorer in the fire program in Illinois, uh, where he lived. So the state is trying to prove that he wasn't genuinely there to help people, as he says. He was there spoiling for a confrontation. He brought his gun because he wanted to be, he wanted to, as they put it, play policeman for a day and play hero. And so they're sort of trying to demonstrate this intent that he was there looking for trouble. And in fact, late in the case, they introduced a video, a drone video, that they then enhanced digitally, zoomed in on and said, they believe it shows Kyle Rittenhouse raising his weapon and pointing it at friends of the first person he shot, which is Joseph Rosenbaum. That would prove, in their view, that he provoked the chasing that Rosenbaum did that ultimately resulted in the first shooting that made him feel threatened, that he says made him fear for his own life and safety. So they raise that element of provocation, and really their case in many ways hangs on that question. Was, was Kyle Rittenhouse someone who was there looking for a fight, looking for a chance to shoot, and found it? Or was he someone there genuinely to help people and found himself defending himself, trying to save his own life and had no choice but to shoot? Obviously, those are the two sides the jury is trying to wade through. So that's the, the prosecution's case. The defense presents their case. And I think it surprised a lot of people when Kyle Rittenhouse took the stand. I think it did because, again, if you sort of watch a trial as it ebbs and flows, at that point in the case, I think a lot of observers felt the state had made a number of mistakes, and in particular, the prosecutor had drawn the ire of Judge Bruce Schrader, who, by the way, has been heavily criticized by some as, as seeming to have tipped his hand on how he feels about the case, maybe showing some bias of his own. That's been the criticism, uh, certainly not suggesting that that is the case, but that's been a, a widespread criticism of the judge. Many people felt that if the judge is already sort of telegraphing where he's coming from and the state's witnesses seem to have not done so well and, and the judge gave a tongue lashing to the prosecutor over uh, his lines of questioning with Kyle Rittenhouse, the judge felt some of that went over the line, involved evidence that hadn't been admitted. Um, everyone, I think, or not everyone, many people felt that the case was already going so well for the defense. Why risk putting a 17-year-old on the stand and opening up to hours and hours of cross-examination, which is exactly what happened. It was like six hours, right? Once the prosecution had him on the stand, they were not going to let him go. And, and Assistant District Attorney Thomas Binger grilled Kyle Rittenhouse for hours. Now, the part that most people will remember seeing, especially if you didn't watch this case hour by hour, minute by minute for days, is the, the moment at which Kyle Rittenhouse breaks down in sobbing tears, not just a few tears, he was hyperventilating to the point that the judge paused the case and, and gave him 10 minutes of a recess to compose himself. But for most of those six hours, if you watch the whole thing, Kyle Rittenhouse was, other than that moment, very well composed, seemed confident. There were times at which he got caught in uh, some, what I think the state would certainly characterize as lies and has characterized as lies, but by and large, he was composed. I think the real question was that was a big gamble for the defense to put him out there. Was it a gamble that paid off? I think that's what we're waiting to find out based on what the jury's uh, ultimate decision is here. But um, it is not common for a criminal defendant to get on the stand in the first place. More often than not, they don't because of that threat of cross-examination. To put a 17-year-old on the stand was a 
big risky maneuver, and we're still waiting to find out if that pays off for the defense. This is a case that has captured the interest not only of Wisconsin, but of the country. What what do you think is the significance of this case for everyone outside the state who's glued to it? I think there is a, a tremendous amount of significance, no matter which way this case goes, because it it really highlights some things that raises questions about what will it mean going forward. Let's imagine for a moment that Kyle Rittenhouse is acquitted on all charges. Does that mean that teenagers can rush into protest zones with guns, openly carrying them, and potentially once they feel threatened, fire and be just fine? Does it sort of become the Wild West? I think there's some fears out there that that could be the case in one direction. On the other hand, if he is convicted, when there is visual evidence that he was being attacked by a number of people, does it really raise questions about when you can defend yourself if you are armed? Does it raise questions about under what circumstances you do have a legal right to defend yourself um, when you feel threatened? So I think there are real concerns from, from folks on both sides as to what the ultimate meaning of this will be. And obviously in the environment we're in with, uh, you know, con- with all the tensions that were raised that led up to this, Uh, you know, the post-George Floyd era, I think it really raises questions about what this will mean for future protests and future situations of civil unrest. Um, How prevalent will guns be at those and and what will it mean? I I just think there are huge implications, even if you don't care about Kyle Rittenhouse. And we should mention, so as we record, the jury is deliberating. Of course, that could change by the time people are listening. Um, But what will come into play or could come into play is that right now there are two motions for a mistrial. One with prejudice, which means that the case could not be tried again, and one without prejudice, which means the case could be tried again. So what's going on right now with those two motions? I know you've done a lot of digging into how that typically works and what that means. Well, the first motion for a mistrial came, uh, I believe it was November 10th, which was uh, about midway through the trial. And The defense at that time was seizing in particular on the state's questioning of their witness, Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, At first, the the prosecutor asked him questions about whether or why he had not told his story until now. After all this had happened, uh, this many months later, he hadn't spoken up, he hadn't told his story. And the judge uh, very quickly and, and harshly admonished the prosecutor that the defendant has a constitutional right to remain silent. So questioning him about that, he said, was inappropriate. Shortly thereafter, the prosecutor asked him questions about a video that was recorded 15 days before the Kenosha incidents in which Kyle Rittenhouse was heard saying as the video was showing people he believed were looting or, or shoplifting from a, a, uh, a pharmacy. He said, I wish I had my AR so I could shoot these people or something to that effect. The judge had declared that that he was not going to admit that as evidence, or he at least said in uh, before the trial that he had a strong bias against admitting that as evidence. And he later reaffirmed that he had not heard anything in testimony up to that point that would uh, that would cause him to change any of his rulings. The state asked about it anyway, and that's the moment where I think many of us have seen the judge really got upset. He, uh, he really laid into the assistant district attorney gave him a tongue lashing, said, uh, I think it was some of the effect of, you know, don't what don't was be it? Don't, brazen with me. We don't heard be that. Brazen yeah, with, yeah, we heard that at the, at the top of the episode. And I if, if I understand, I almost said don't sass me, but, you know, similar thing, similar right? to that. Well, because at that point, 
the assistant district attorney was making the trying to make the argument that Kyle Rittenhouse opened the door to that line of questioning in his testimony, and the judge did not seem to to like that pushback. So, so the the to to get to the original question, the the state made or the defense made that motion then on those two points, um, but it was an oral motion, and the judge took it under advisement, meaning he didn't rule on it at that time. And that was the motion for mistrial with prejudice. And that's important. That was a motion for mistrial with prejudice with the term with prejudice means you can't the the case is over. You can't refile this case. So that would be the end of it. Kyle Rittenhouse would not be able to be tried on these charges again. As the trial went on, the judge had taken that under advisement. He never ruled on that. And it wasn't, in fact, until Monday of this week, the week we're recording this episode, uh, that the state or defense finally put that motion in writing. And so the judge uh later clarified that he was still waiting for that written motion and for the state to respond, which as of this recording, we don't believe the state has given a written response to that. So he hadn't ruled on it. Now, he could still rule on that motion up and until a jury verdict is not only read into court, but until it is entered into the record as the official verdict, until he accepts that as the judge and makes it the final judgment. So he could, in fact, the judge could conceivably, and he has now said as much, he could wait for the jury's verdict to decide whether or not he needs to entertain that motion at all. And that's usually words, how it happens, right? That's actually, and I've, I, I spoke to a number of legal experts, including former Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Janine Geske, who said not only can he do that, that's the appropriate way to handle it at this point. If he felt the violation was so egregious it called for an immediate mistrial at the time the motion was made, he could have done that then. But the typical, most common course of action is to take it under advisement. If the defendant is acquitted... There's no reason to entertain a motion for a mistrial. He's acquitted. It's over. He can't be tried again under double jeopardy. But if he is convicted on one or more of the counts, the judge could then say, okay, defense, do you still want to pursue that motion? They say we do. And then the judge could either make a ruling or he could, in fact, call for uh, additional argument. He could ask for briefs to be filed. This could go on for some time. But that wasn't the last motion. Actually, at, while the jury is deliberating on Wednesday, the defense made a second motion for a mistrial, this time without prejudice, and it was based on a different violation, they say, which is the state had shared a drone video with them that has become a key element of their case, the key element potentially proving provocation, um, but they gave the defense a version that was much lower resolution. Uh, it was a file size that was considerably smaller and therefore couldn't be blown up in the way they were doing it to show to the jury. And I think that the way, if I'm understanding it right, the prosecution is saying, hey, we wanted to airdrop it to you. And the defense said, we don't know how to use airdrop. So the prosecution sent it in a different way. Um, and that is how the file got compressed, is their argument that they didn't do that intentionally. Correct. They did, they, definitely the argument that it wasn't intentional. They had received it through an airdrop, which is an iPhone-to-iPhone communication. Uh, the detective who received this video airdropped it to the prosecution. The prosecution ultimately asked the defense how they wanted to receive it, and they essentially said, just email it to us. And once it was emailed, it appears, at least this is the prosecution's uh, argument, is that the email process, it was actually transferred from an iPhone to an Android Android phone and then emailed. Somewhere in that process, the file size was reduced without their knowledge. Usually that happens iPhone to Android. 
And so dis- the, the, the defense received the, the, the file thinking this is the full resolution. They didn't know any different. And the prosecution thought they had given the full resolution video. It wasn't until the defense was playing that video in court that the prosecution said, whoa, whoa, hang on a minute. We have a, we, we'd rather play this higher resolution version. And when they brought that out, the defense said, wait a minute, we didn't have this higher resolution version. What's going on? And so that matters that becomes- because they were zooming in to see Kyle Rittenhouse with his weapon. That's why that's key, because when you have a lower resolution version and you zoom in, you don't get that same clarity as you do with the higher resolution version. And there is some argument or at least some contention that the higher resolution version zoomed in. The state crime lab did this work, that there may have been some pixels that were inadvertently added that make it appear that Kyle Rittenhouse is aiming the weapon, as they say. Uh, it's it's a very, even zoomed in, it's a very grainy look. So it's not a clear picture. Again, that under rules of evidence, though, the state must share everything it has with the defense. And it's got to be, you know, in this case, it's got to be the same file. It's got to be the same file size. So this may have been inadvertent. But what the argument the defense made on Wednesday was, is regardless of the state's intent, even if it was accidental, they had a piece of evidence that is now a key part of their argument, of their case, that we didn't have access to until after the jury was deliberating. And if that's the case, they say, we need to retry this. But this time, they asked for a trial without, or for a mistrial without prejudice, which would allow the case to be retried. Here's why that's really interesting. When the defense asked for the first mistrial with prejudice, most observers thought the defense was winning this case. And it is rare for most mistrial requests come from the defense. And in most cases, it's because they're losing and they want a second crack at it. And most mistrial motions don't go anywhere. That's what typically happens in criminal trials. It's very common to have a mistrial motion. It's very common for them not to go anywhere. This was the defense asking for a mistrial with prejudice at a time many people felt it was winning the case. So why? Well, they felt it was strong enough. Let's end this right here. Let's not take any further risk of of something happening with the jury. Now they're asking for a motion for a mistrial without prejudice. And some observers have looked at that and said that may be a suggestion that the length of deliberations is not good news for Kyle Rittenhouse, that if they were going to acquit, they might have done so rather quickly. But two, three days into it, it suggests they are really breaking down each Uh, count and there may be at least one or more guilty verdicts coming. So the defense may want to start over and say, let's do this again. That's trying to read into what's going on. I'm not uh, suggesting that is the case, but that's what some observers are asking. There's certainly a difference between a request for a mistrial with prejudice versus one without. So let, and I mean, I know even when we get a verdict or if we get a verdict, uh, that is going to be a, a different question than sentencing. So, and, and this is a conversation we've been having in our newsroom, Brian. It's one that you sparked where when we talk about sentencing, um, the, the sentence doesn't mean this is all the time the person is going to spend in prison. So what is Kyle Rittenhouse looking at from a senten- sentencing perspective as far as potential time in prison goes? Of the five counts against Kyle Rittenhouse, the most serious is first-degree intentional homicide. That involves the shooting of Anthony Huber, who was the one who came in and swung the skateboard at him. Uh, Because that is intentional homicide, it carries a mandatory life sentence. If he is convicted of that count, the judge has no option but to sentence him to life in prison. Now, there are lesser charges available 
to the to the jury on some of these counts. And so he could get less than that on, on some of these individual counts. That's the most serious. There are two others that there's a first degree reckless homicide, which involves the, the shooting of Joseph Rosenbaum. And that carries a 60 year sentence. But that doesn't mean 60 years in prison. It's actually broken down into two parts, 40 years in prison, 20 years on extended supervision, essentially what we would many, many of us would think of as parole um, out in the community. So 40 years on that. There are a couple of counts that carry a 40 year. There are a couple of counts in there that carry a maximum of seven and a half years confinement, 12 and a half total if you count the extended supervision. It's hard to say what the total would be, but obviously the most serious one is that that first degree intentional homicide. After that, you start adding up the numbers. It could be, you know, 20, 60, 80, 100. I, we'll have to wait and see what the jury comes and back two, with. And uh, two of those counts got dismissed. Two counts were dismissed. They were the less, the, the least serious charges. The, the one criminal count that was dismissed was illegal possession of a weapon by a person under the age of 18. Um, and, and that was dismissed because the judge said the law in Wisconsin is written so poorly that essentially it did not cover the type of weapon he was carrying. It wasn't a short-barreled shotgun. It wasn't a handgun. It was a long gun. And uh, because of the state being a very pro-hunter state, the laws are written in a way that allow teenagers and, and children to have guns out in you know the fields and, and out in the woods shooting. It didn't really clarify that, you know, whether or not you could have a rifle in the middle of a protest. Um, but because of that, the judge dismissed that count. Um, there is one other count that was dismissed prior to that, and that was, I believe, had to do with the, uh, was that transporting that was the gun curfew. across state lines? I thought that was, that was curfew. Cur I'm sorry, you're right, you're right. That was a curfew violation. Um, just on the point of transporting a gun, there's a lot of misconception that Kyle Rittenhouse transported a gun across state lines. He did not, as you, if you uh, watch the trial early in the testimony, the gun was being stored at his best friend's house in Kenosha. He came from Illinois to Kenosha, but got the gun here. So he didn't transport it across state lines. Um, but the, the curfew question was dismissed by the judge because it was uh, there were questions about whether or not it was, in fact, a lawful order. Um, and, and so that, that one's not there. So there are five criminal counts, fel all felonies, obviously all very serious charges, and, and Kyle Rittenhouse facing significant potential time in prison. And I think what's clear is even if you're listening to this after a, a verdict has come down, this is not the last we've heard of this case, and we'll be unraveling this, I think, for quite some time. Well, you think of the things that will come after a verdict. Number one, there's still the mistrial motions for the judge to potentially rule on. If he requests briefing on that, that could take a considerable amount of time before he even enters the verdict as a judgment. And once he enters the verdict as a judgment, there's still sentencing. So the those are maximum sentences I was referring to. The judge does not have to grant a maximum sentence. Um, so the only one he's really bound to is that first degree intentional homicide, which is a mandatory life sentence. If if Kyle Rittenhouse is not convicted of first degree intentional homicide, the judge still has a considerable amount of discretion as to what he sentences him to. And that will be a whole other phase of this trial. So there's a long way to go before this is wrapped up, even if as we as you're hearing this, even if a verdict has come down, this is by far not the end of the story. All right, it is time to go off the record. This is the part of the podcast where we answer a question we have not prepared for. And here to ask us that question is our executive producer, Sarah Smith. Hey, Sarah. Cello. Um, today's question is, I don't know. I don't know if it'll be simple or 
maybe not. Um, okay, the question is, using just one word, name something that drives your success. I thought you were going to say that drives you crazy, and I almost had one ready to go, but I'm going to save that for another time. Okay, I'll say that maybe for next time. Um, I love the one word. Um, but anyway, I you know I just think we all are very much um, strive for the excellence, you know, with whatever we do, whether it's our home life or work life. So, um, I guess the one word that drives your success. Um, I can start because I already jotted down my answer. Um, my my one word is fear. Uh, fear of failure, basically. <laughs> um, so it, it is, it is self-imposed. So it's, um, I set, you know, sometimes some may say unrealistic goals and standards for myself. Um, and so if I think that failure is on the horizon or that's a thing, um, I, that, that fear is enough to make me work harder and smarter and, you know, faster. So, um, I, I would say fear. It's funny you say that because the first word that popped into my head was anxiety because yeah. I always joke yeah. I always joke that the thing that makes me good at my job is the also the reason I need therapy. Um, but I think if I were to go in a in a different direction, I would use the word that I've said on this podcast before, and it's audacity. I think I mean from a professional standpoint, as an investigative reporter, you need a certain amount of audacity to go, you know, stick a camera and microphone in someone's face and say, hey, you need to answer our questions. Um, and but it also takes a certain amount of audacity to think outside the box and try new ways of doing things. And I feel like that applies to my professional life, but it also applies to my home life. So the, I, I would say that's the word if we're talking success at home and at work audacity is probably the more um, accurate description. If we're talking about just at work, maybe anxiety is a little more accurate. This is tough because I have two words that I'm thinking of that when you hear them both, you're going to think, but those are completely the opposite. Let's hear it. And the, the, so the first word that I thought of was self-confidence. I just have a confidence in myself that I can do it. And that a standard that I want to hold myself to. And I feel like if I don't accomplish what I think I'm capable of, then I'm I'm not doing enough because I'm confident that I have the capability. I feel capable. On the other hand, the other word that came to mind was, and this is probably the real one, insecurity. Because I'm completely insecure about anyone thinking I'm not competent or thinking I'm not good enough, or thinking that uh, I, I was too lazy or couldn't do the job, or that, uh, boy, for all that time he got on that story, that was pretty lame. I, I, I'm so insecure about that, that I think that has probably driven me more over the years. Um, when I go back to my early days in news, you know, no one expects much of you when you're sort of this, I, I started out in radio, no one expected much of me at all, but I was young and had sort of a high-pitched nasally voice and there were all of these broadcasters around me with these golden deep voices and I felt incredibly insecure about that so I worked really hard to improve my sound and my delivery and I thought I have to compensate I have to overcompensate for that sound and that youth that seems like inexperience I had to overcompensate with that by proving that I knew the material better than anyone that I was a go-getter and that I was going to do as quality a work as anybody else and that involved a lot of mimicking others, a lot of sort of looking at what I wanted to emulate and trying to, to do that. And, and early on in anybody's broadcast career, that comes off as maybe insincere because you sound like you're copying 
you're trying to sound like if you listen to a lot of young uh, uh, television journalists in particular, you'll hear almost them trying to sound like other people who've been successful because you are trying to emulate people who do this job well. Over time, I started to receive accolades. Hey, that's great work. Um, you know, I started moving up into bigger markets. I'm here in Milwaukee and I started winning a few awards. Then the insecurity goes to I have to prove I'm not a fraud. Like yeah, I have to yeah. prove I deserved Maintain. all of that. Yeah. And 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 that drives me still to this day because after all the years I've been doing this and you know the whether it's the awards, the accolades or a boss telling you, "Hey, great job," which is wonderful to hear, um my greatest insecurity is that one day they'll come and say, "Your work lately sucks and all of that stuff before it means nothing. It's what have you done for me lately?" But it's nobody doing that to me. You, Sarah, have never come to me and said, boy, Brian, you're really slacking off. You might think it, but you've never said it. So it's self-imposed, and I don't think that's driven by self-confidence. I think that's definitely insecurity. This profession is a really weird combination of ego and deep-rooted insecurity and self-loathing. <laughs> like, you yeah. you need to have the ego. You need to have a little bit of a swagger. You need to that's that's part of it and you do something great and you you feel great about it for approximately six seconds and (laughs) then six seconds after your story airs you're going what do I have next is this going to be as good as the last one I did this now I need to make sure I'm exceeding that and it's like you're just it's really easy to spiral um or to be like okay yeah people think I'm good at this but am I am I meeting these expectations that aren't actually expectations other people have they're expectations i have of other people's expectations so <laughs> of me yeah so it's yeah. like it is true like i and that, i that you you might have just written my uh, own autobiography for me <laughs> right? because that is exactly what i face constantly and and if, yeah. if you ask my wife i've talked to her about this number of times we don't live in this world anymore but it used to be that we were very heavily focused on sweeps periods which were four times a year February, May, July, and November. And that November and May were the biggest. But our investigative stories would be heavily focused on these sweeps periods because we put a lot of time and effort into them. The station's going to promote them. They want to get the most eyes on them. Therefore, value. And value means we want it to count. And so during those times, I used to go through emotional and psychological cycles. When we just got through a series of stories, especially if I was really proud of them, I felt really great about myself as a journalist. I'm doing tremendous work. I'm really awesome at this job. And then immediately you're into the next what's coming up next. And I would have story ideas that I wasn't sure about or things that weren't working out. And I would go through a period of four to six to eight weeks where I would just start just I felt that that self-loathing when you said that, Amanda, that stuck with me because I would say how much I suck at my job. I'm terrible at this. Why do they even pay me to do this? And, and it would go through this cycle about four times a year. And, and my, my wife will tell you she knew when it was getting close to sweeps because right before that would begin is when I was at my lowest point and I was stressed and I would get short and I would get – and I don't mean physically. That's all the time. I, I would get short with her and I would I would not realize how stressed out and what a ball of anxiety I was. And then when sweeps was midway through or over – I was just <sighs> wonderful to be around. Jolly. Yeah. No, so it's... we don't do that anymore because sweeps doesn't exist like it used to. And now I think I still go through those cycles. They're just yeah. not as predictable. Well, and it's just 
I have such mixed feelings about people saying journalism is a calling because on one hand I do feel like that I I can't imagine a, a job that for me personally Amanda St. Hilaire would feel more fulfilling it does become part of your identity it does feel like a calling on the other hand that mentality that can push you to that success which is the whole thing you asked us about at the beginning it also can really be not a super healthy mindset and not super great for your mental health so i have i have this like love hate relationship with the idea of journalism as a calling because when that's how you identify yourself and that's how you that's where you put your your value as a human being that's where you can get into some really weird headspace so um the you know what's what's weird about that, Amanda, is that I think you probably compared to me, you probably have long felt journalism more as a calling than I ever did, which is part of my struggle is I didn't actually really ever see myself getting into this. It kind of happened. And then I thought, well, I, if I'm going to do it, I guess I need to be good at it. But but it was even maybe even harder because I, maybe this wasn't what I was called to do. Maybe I should have, you know been a lawyer or a or a you know who knows what maybe i should have built houses but um but but that that when you does it does it make it harder or better when you feel like what you're doing is in fact this deep calling both it like any i think i think the theme of this question is that everything's a double-edged sword right so on the one hand it can really fuel you because it's very easy to see what the purpose of your work is especially when you do work where you see the impact or you've given people information they wouldn't otherwise have like there's there's that that value of it but it's also a business and it's a job and it's it it can't be the thing that completely defines you because at at the end of the day it's a job and so I really struggle with having a healthy perspective but also recognizing the great power with which we've been entrusted and what I feel like is the privilege to be able to do a, a deeply interesting job that I, I deeply enjoy. Um, but then that also can take a, a really big toll on you emotionally, especially for this kind of work that we do, the long-term stuff. I mean, we've signed up to have homework the rest of our lives. That's what we've done, right? <laughs> There's always something looming uh, over true. you. You're, you're never and really not done. just homework. This is the thing I've tried. Whenever people ask me, what does it mean? What is it like to be an investigative reporter? The best way I can, especially when I'm doing like a career day speech or something or, or, or presentation at a school, the best way I can relate it to, to most people is when you were in school and you had a nightly homework assignment, it was frustrating, but it was done and it was over. And then you got to tomorrow's homework assignment. That's general assignment reporting. It's not that it's not hard. It's not that it's not a pain in it's the butt. It's hard in a different way. It, it's hard in a very different way. This is like having nothing but term papers. <laughs> and and the term papers are always hanging over your head. No, the term paper's not due tomorrow. So hey, it seems like you I could I could goof off all day today, but I'm going to pay the price tomorrow because the term paper's coming and I don't just have one term paper. I've got several term papers that are floating out there all at once. That's what it feels like and and that's a level of sort of like constant existing stress that's always out there because there's often not resolution from day to day. Um, I'm not complaining about my job. I've said this many times. I love my job and, and, and it's, it's a great, it's been a great career for me, but that's definitely the sort of, when you said that the term paper thing, that's always stuck with me because term papers, anyone who's had one, 
you know it's just looming and the deadline's getting closer. And the closer you get to it, the more stress you feel. Hey, Sarah, thanks for the therapy session. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, this. I feel like the, the off-the-record segment has become like Fox 6 Investigators right. Therapy. And I don't even have to pay for this. So I'll send yeah. you all the bill. <laughs> Put it on the tab. I, I, it, the only thing that hasn't felt like therapy was uh, what was the candy question. The Halloween that candy question. Maybe that was even better. I don't know. Maybe I that was even know. better therapy. I feel like a therapist could have fun with listening to our conversation about that, though. Like maybe choosing right. Snickers hints at says something about yeah, your personality. Exactly. Deep, deep seated anxiety. Yeah. There we go. Well, I know all about that. So if you have a topic you'd like us to discuss on Open Record. Um, or in general, or in our off-the-record segment. You can send that to Sarah. Um, if there's an issue you think we should investigate, please send us an email. You can send your emails to fox6investigators at fox.com. Again, that is fox6investigators at fox.com. As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Sigmund Freud, producer Pete, <laughs> Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and of course, executive producer Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you have not done that already. We say it every time, but we really appreciate it when you do. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. With that, I'm Brian Polson for Amanda St. Hilaire. We'll be back again next week. Mm-hmm.